Well, join me in standing as we rise to read this morning's sermon text. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to the second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 19 is where we are going to be. At long last, Moses and the Israelite people have come to Mount Sinai, as God promised Moses they would as far back as Exodus chapter 3. And if you know your Bible well enough, you know that it's not until Numbers chapter 10, many, many chapters forward in God's Word, that Israel's actually going to leave Mount Sinai. They're going to sit here for a long time. So clearly, uh, there's much that God's people need to learn here at Sinai, and surely there's much that we need to learn as well. So let me uh, read our 25 verses before us this morning, and then I pray briefly for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, and don't go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, 
lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down, and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do pray that as you spoke to Moses on that mountain, uh, that you might speak to us through the mountain of your word this morning, uh, that we might tremble before its truth, that we might have faith and fear before your holy word, that you would grow us in holiness as we get a majestic sight of your splendor and majesty. Help us to hear with earnestness and eagerness, for we are all dying. Help us to listen with humility and meekness, for me to preach with courage and clarity as a dying man. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Several years ago, I had the chance to take a number of college students to a rather large conference that was designed to encourage and equip those students as the next generation and what it would mean for them to to live for God's glory alone. And one of the more notable things about this conference for many years has been its music. And so before and after the main messages, you have these kind of rapturous experiences of music. And so uh, not surprisingly, uh, after the first sermon in the main kind of session, uh, two hours later we gathered together and I asked all the students that I was with and we had brought, hey, what stood out to you in that first session? And all of them had different words, yet the same answer. Uh, They said something to the effect of that was the most impressive worship service I've ever seen before. As some of you may have had similar experiences, some of you may have even said similar things. That was an entirely impressive, weighty, majestic even, a worship service. And the reason I tell you that is because when we come to Exodus 19, uh, we come to what eminent Old Testament scholar has called the most impressive earthly corporate worship event in all of Scripture. And if you thought long enough in the rest of the Bible, I think you would be hard-pressed to find a more impressive earthly corporate worship event than what happens here in Exodus 19 and the chapters to follow. Because what we're going to see, of course, this morning is Sinai quaking and shaking, such as the power of this nation's meeting with God. And I wonder what happens when you tend to meet with God. What wells up in your heart? What experience tends to define those moments when God draws near to you? I would imagine, for for many of you in here today, when God draws near, it feels as though there's a great sense of comfort Compassion even. Maybe other times, more often than not, perhaps even, it's conviction. Or perhaps even like it was with Israel at Sinai. There is this sense of your soul shaking and and quaking in fear. And so the shaking of Sinai, that's the theme of Exodus chapter 19. And I want to notice it in three parts. Because kids, you might have noticed as I read the passage, uh, Moses is yo-yoing up and down the mountain there at Sinai. He actually goes up and down three times. 
in the text. And so uh, the way I want to just mark off the passage is just notice his ascents to the mountain. So first of all, it's going to be a text that calls us to look to God's grace. Secondly, learn what God commands. And thirdly, listen to God's warnings. So it's a text, this impressive earthly corporate worship event, calling us to look, calling us to learn, and calling us to listen. Look to God's grace begins, you notice in verse 1, we're told it was on the third moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's hard to be exactly precise, although some scholars are so precise to say that is 70 days after the nation of Israel would have left Egypt, and that's actually probably likely. But if you want to generalize it a little bit more, it certainly means about three months after they left Egypt, they have made it all the way to Sinai. And it's important to remember what I mentioned before I read the text, that God had promised Moses, you're going to come and meet with me on this mountain. That God had given him that promise all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. And so the story of Exodus, if you have eyes to see, is helping us see over and over. God just doesn't make promises. He he keeps His promises. A promise already kept by this point in verse 1. And you'll see that they set up their camp around the mountain there. And in verse 3, Moses goes up the mountain for the first time. You see what we're told. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. You know, students, if you want to think about that a little bit different, you can essentially think about God, Yahweh, telling Moses, go preach a gospel sermon to Israel. Because that's what Moses is getting ready to do with the words given to him in verses 4, 5, and 6. And you want to pay particular attention to verses 4, 5, and 6, because much more than you might realize in the New Testament's commentary teaching on the gospel of Jesus Christ, has these very words in the background, in its explanation and even declaration of Christ's grace. So notice what we're told, first of all, about what God did in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. You do want to underscore the sovereign grace of God in that, right? You weren't the ones that delivered yourself out of Egypt. I did it. I bore you on eagles' wings. Wings. Now, some of you may know that when eagles learn how to fly, what a mother often does is take, you know, uh, the little eaglets up, and then they're kind of flailing about in the sky and often dropping their way back down to earth. And then what a mother eagle will have to do is spread her wings underneath the little eaglets, lest they fall in their hopeless situation. And you'll find this metaphor used of the Lord's kindness and provision and even protection of His people in a number of places in Scripture. And certainly, whenever I kind of read that phrase that he is carrying his people as on eagle's wings. I can't help but always remember this scene, one of the more famous ones from uh, The Hobbit when Bilbo and his merry band of dwarves are kind of driven out from this mountain. They just escaped these goblins and then ravenous wolves show up and they're trying to eat them. So those ravenous wolves drive them up the tree and then suddenly those trees catch on fire and they're very much out of the frying pan into the fryer when suddenly these majestic eagles swoop in and save them from all the danger. And God says in the exact same way, that's what I've done for you. You couldn't deliver yourself from bondage and slavery, so I have swooped in and rescued you and taken you to safety. Not just taken you to safety, I've brought you to myself. Do you see how verse 4 ends? That's the language, that phrase, brought you to myself. It's the language in the Old Testament of adoption. I haven't just freed you from slavery in Egypt. I've made you my children. 
Even Israel has the corporate identity of God's firstborn son, such as what God did, which leads to then what God requires. Notice verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Obey my voice and, and keep my covenant. I think you should pause right there for just a minute because perhaps you know this in your own Christian experience. These kind of conditional statements. So students, that just means an if-then sentence. If this, then that. A conditional statement can often trip up Christians. Because if you read this passage in one way, you can make it seem as though it's only if you keep my commandments, then you will be my people. But make sure you get the order right first, because we've already told, verse 4, that you already are my people according to my sovereign redemption and mercy. Therefore, you must keep my commandments. So there's this gospel order to it. And perhaps a way that you want to think through at least these kind of conditional statements is there's this distinction between covenant status, you are my people, and covenant enjoyment of what must happen to enjoy the covenant grace of God as His people. Because what the Bible is going to tell us all throughout the covenant grace of God that He pours out upon His people, it's only when faith and obedience happen that God's people receive the promises. That God's people enjoy the covenant grace that's theirs in Jesus Christ, which is why it naturally leads into not just what God requires, but what God promises. You must keep my covenant and, and listen to my voice if you're going to enjoy these promises. People of Israel, notice verse 5 continues, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The kids, the Lord is saying, every nation, all people on the earth belongs to me. But I have a, a special look of love on Israel. That's why even in Deuteronomy, when Moses recounts much of this to the people before they enter the promised land, he will say that they are the apple of God's eye. If you want to know what that looks like, here's a simple illustration for it. In years past here at Redeemer, I've had no small number of occasions to just stare out those windows right there. And notice kids playing on the playground. And there's a sense in which, covenantally speaking, they're all my children as a shepherd in this church. But on many of those occasions, one of my actual biological children are there playing as well. And there is a, a way in which I look upon my children that's uniquely different than all other children. And parents, you know exactly what I mean. That's what God is saying here. Treasured possession, Israel. All nations belong to me but my People, Israel, they are the apple of my eye. Not just that, you'll see how the text continues, verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You want to underscore those promises because they are absolutely in every way offered to you today in Jesus Christ, that if you turn from your sin and trust in Him, every single one of those promises are already yours in Christ Jesus. That's why the Apostle Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting directly from our passage, he says of the church of Jesus Christ, but you, you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So I wonder today if you know what Jesus has done for sinners like you, do you know what Jesus requires from sinners like you or what promises he's made? Sinners like you, to look to His grace. You see, verse 7 continues, Moses sets it before the elders, before the people, this great gospel sermon, and what do they respond with in verse 8? But all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Still today, one of 
the most respected academic publishers in the world is Oxford University Press. And believe it or not, still to this day, the best-selling title in the history of Oxford University Press is a study Bible. It's a study Bible that was printed some little over 100 years ago and in every way had an inordinate influence on American Christianity, certainly Western Christianity in the 20th century. And if you ever read its study note here on Exodus 19, verse 8, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. Uh, The comment simply at the bottom reads, Israel was rash to accept the Lord's word because it views the situation here as moving from a relationship based in grace to a relationship based in law. But that's to fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of what's getting ready to come in the ensuing chapters in Exodus. Yes, God has given His law to His people, and they were, of course, right and wise to accept it. Uh, This law was going to be what the Lord and His plan of redemptive history was going to use like a tutor to take His people by the hand to show them they couldn't meet the law's perfect demands, and so they needed one who could do that. So it was quite right and good that they said, all that you have spoken, we will do. Look to God's grace. Number two, learn what God commands. Learn what God commands. I've had a a number of times in recent years where I've read these old 19th century manuals of pastoral ministry. And one of the things that was obviously quite different at that time in the church is that everyone who came to the church did so in part because they could walk to the church. There was a geographic proximity required of, of your membership. And so pastors and elders, certainly in the early 1800s, would uh, be much about the business of visiting people home, home, uh, home by home throughout the week. You know, they just would spend many hours each day just knocking on doors and, and seeing how people were doing, catechizing the children, asking spiritual questions. But as that practice developed over time, many elders and pastors in our Presbyterian tradition at least, they began to institute the practice of letting the family know when they would arrive. And then if you, you read these old manuals, there'll be these kind of uh, rather humorous remarks that these ministers and leaders will make about how it just so happened, you know, every time we came to this house, the place that used to be known for filth and mess is as clean as a penny that just came from the mint. You know, if you tell them you're going to come, I tend to prepare for your coming. How much more when God says, I'm getting ready to come, is it right for God's people to prepare for that Coming, Because you see, Moses, of course, is, is going up the mountain again soon enough. And verse 10 through 11 finds the Lord telling Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, if, you, if you know your Bible well enough, you know that even this phrase, the third day, is always a significant one. When God says something's going to happen on the third day, it tends to be something very significant that happens on the third day. Of course, the most famous place of significance of a third day occurrence was Jesus rising again from the dead. But even in Israel's history, by this point in their experience, there was a third day event. It was a gospel event that was very much part and parcel to their identity. Because it was on the, the third day that Abraham went up a mountain with his son Isaac and intended to sacrifice his son Isaac. And the Lord on that third day provided a ram and proved that he was Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, 
provides. So on the third day, something significant is going to happen. God is going to descend upon this mountain. You'll notice verse 12 through 15, the people must get ready for that descent of God. They've got to wash their clothes. They must be clean before the Lord. They're not supposed to touch the mountain. Moses is told to build a fence around the mountain lest people want to touch the mountain. Not just that, there's supposed to be no marital relations in verse 15, presumably to allow for prayer, to prepare for God's coming. And what you see there in just those short sweep of verses is a truth that you find all throughout the Bible. is that God gets to define how His people meet with Him. That it's God's Word that defines how we come to God. It's God who gets to require how we draw near to Him. You know, someone once said, rushed hearts rarely receive from God. And if you meditate on that long enough, you know that it's certainly quite true. Uh, you, you want to be thankful, don't you, that God in His grace and mercy often gives grace and mercy to hasty hearts. But it's in times of an unhurried soul, of a quiet mind, of a prepared heart that God tends to do His greatest work among His people. The nation of Israel for three days had to prepare to meet with God. You know, students, I wonder how you might prepare to meet with God throughout the week. Do you prepare to even meet with God on the Lord's Day? Fathers, if you have children, how are you preparing your family to meet with God? There's all manner of ways in which we can do it. But certainly there are ways in which we must be doing it if we're going to come in His presence with the holiness that He requires. So they must learn what God commands. And finally, the rest of the text tells us to listen to God's Warning, notice verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, kids, if you know what an inferno is, you have, you have an idea of what's happening here at Sinai. In the psalm we sang at the beginning of our service, it uses the language of heaven melting into Sinai. Such is the nature of all of this magnificent descent upon God, from God upon the mountain. Because think about the multi-sensory nature of this worship experience, right? Before the eyes, fire and lightning. Before the nose, smoke. Ears, thunder. And a trumpet. And I wonder how you would respond to such a stance before the Lord. Israel's here around the mountain, verse 13 has told us they were going to take their place. In verse 17, they actually took their stand before the mountain. And what must have been on their minds as all of this was breaking out before their eyes and before their very experience? Oh, we know, don't we? They're trembling. The mountain is shaking. The souls are quaking. And Moses has got to go up a third time. A trumpet is sounded. The people have drawn near. The trumpet's getting louder and louder. Verse 20 tells us the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And Yahweh called Moses up again to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And if you notice just the next couple of verses, God gives the warnings once again to Moses. God says, well, I've already warned the people. Notice what God says in verse 24. Warn them again. Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And certainly, it's one thing in the nation of Israel's experience to, to wonder how they were responding to that moment there at the mountain as God descended upon Sinai. It's another thing to consider Moses' mind at that moment when he went up Sinai. 
to talk to God amidst the fire, thunder, lightning, and all the smoke. We know the Bible tells us that Moses was the humblest of all humans. He was the meekest of all men. The Old Testament tells us that no Old Testament saint enjoyed face-to-face communion with God like Moses did. If you know the story of Exodus well, you know by this point in the narrative, Moses has already seen stupendous displays of God's majesty, hasn't he? The burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. All the plagues in chapters 7 through 12. The Red Sea deliverance. So if you think if anyone in the world was equipped to walk up that mountain with confidence, it would be Moses. And yet later on today, you can reflect upon Moses' words to the nation of Israel so many years in the future. Deuteronomy chapter 9, he says he was sore afraid when he went up that mountain. Such is the shaking of Sinai. In 1989, there was an Australian man, a 32-year-old man named Eli Kuo, who was a kung fu enthusiast. And he had been training for many years to reach some level of mastery and expertise and, and that martial art. And evidently he got to that point. For his instructor said he had reached such a level of ability that he could rip apart apex predators. And so Eli Kuo took that genuinely to heart. And, and one night he uh, stormed into or climbed over the fence at the Melbourne Zoo. And he climbed over another fence and dropped into the lion's den to prove that he could rip apart apex predators. And he didn't find, of course, just one lion in there. He found many lions in there. And tragically, yet expectedly, it went how you would think. He never came out. He thought drawing near was an altogether safe experience because he had the ability to do so. And Exodus 19 is all a text about what it means to draw near to God. It's a text that shapes so much more of the Scripture than you might even realize of how God's people draw near to God, how God draws near to His people. So as we begin to close, all I want to do is just give you a couple truths from this text about drawing near to God. The first of which is drawing near to God is dangerous. Drawing near to God is is dangerous. Look again at what we're told in verse 12. Moses tell the people this fence needs to go around the mountain. Warn them, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then skip down to verse 21, the warning again, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to Yahweh to look upon him, and many of them perish. Drawing near to God is, is a dangerous endeavor for sinful people to draw near to a holy God. And not just that, of course, drawing near to God is not just a dangerous endeavor. Drawing near to God requires holiness. That's what the text is continually telling us. We're going to see that over and over in a variety of ways in Exodus. That when God means to meet with His people, His people must come to meet with God with prepared holiness. And the reason that's so important for you to recognize is not just so that you might understand your Old Testament well, also that you might understand the end of history well. Because this creates a great problem, doesn't it? Drawing near to God is dangerous, and we draw near to Him in unholiness, and and death is going to come. The time is coming, the Bible tells us, we don't know exactly when, when God will descend again. This time with either greater tremblings, shakings, signs in the heavens. And His drawing near will be a most dangerous event for anyone and everyone who's not ready to meet with Him. Hasn't washed the garments of their soul, that they can come near to Him. God drawing near is not always good news for people. 
but it can be good news for people like you today when you understand the third point. It's not just true that drawing near to God is dangerous and drawing near to God requires holiness. Number three, drawing near to God is possible because of Jesus. You can draw near to God. You who is a sinful, unholy person can draw near to this tremblingly, frighteningly holy God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the author to the Hebrews actually makes this point most eloquently. Some of you might know this from the end of Hebrews chapter 12. After he's talked about a variety of different things in the first few verses about holiness and and discipline, he starts comparing Sinai and the Savior. And what he tells people like you and me, alive in the new covenant era of Jesus Christ, is that we have come to a mountain. But you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You have not come to a mountain that's full of tremblings and tempests and trumpets. You have not come to a mountain that brings the touch of death. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, that you've come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of a better covenant. You've come to the blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks a better word. So how is it that sinful people like you and me can draw near to God and feel His touch and not die? It's only if you touch Jesus Christ with the arms of faith and find His blood washing you clean. If you touch Jesus Christ with the arms of faith and find yourself made holy because of His perfect holiness. If you touch Jesus Christ, God drawing near to you will be a touch of everlasting life instead of everlasting death. This is the true gospel message of the shaking of Sinai. And you must hear what even the apostolic author wants you to hear in the book of Hebrews. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking from his mountain. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through Jesus Christ, and we pray that his blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel would cover us, would cleanse us of our sin, that we might draw near to you with fullness of confidence and access before your throne. Lord, we ask that you would come again soon, that your descent upon this world would not tarry much longer, that we might be able to enjoy an eternal communion and fellowship with you. Uh, Do help us to ready ourselves for that day with preparation, with holiness, with constant nearness to Jesus Christ as we worship you in all things. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.